to our text, I just uh, want to ask, have you ever watched a piano being tuned? Have you ever experienced that or seen that? Occasionally, we'll have our piano tuner here, and you know, we'll, I'll get to see and hear him up here tuning the piano. I don't know how many people have ever, have ever seen that or even thought about the fact that, oh yeah, that thing has to be tuned occasionally because it gets out of tune. Um, I'm not sure if they still do this, probably not with all the technology we have. Some may still, some uh, kind of old school piano tuners, but using a tuning fork is how pianos and other uh, uh, types of instruments that were used to be tuned, right? You tune a, had a tuning fork, it was a, a, a device that was made out of metal and you would, it had, had the, the right uh, 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 note that would be played or, or, uh, and they would hit it and they would tune the piano to that tuning fork. And A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, uses this illustration of a tuning fork. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are all of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So analogous, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become, quote, unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Just trying hard to have unity isn't going to bring about true unity. So we can talk all we want about being one, about unity, about being uh, a multiple, multiple diversity, unity and diversity. We can talk all about that. But if we're not focused on Jesus, then all of our unity will be only superficial. Our oneness will only be one until someone offends you or doesn't do something the way that you think should be done. So with this in mind, let us read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, and your word given to us by the work of your Spirit. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning, Lord, that we would have eyes that see and ears that hear. Lord, that we would not only be transformed by your word, but conformed to it. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're... uh, If you haven't been with us for a few weeks or you're our uh, guest this morning, we've been in a short series titled, Who Are We? Who are we as a congregation? Who are we as a church? And last week, Pastor Alex preached from Revelation 7, 9 through 12 in Spanish. Those of you who weren't here last week, you missed something pretty exciting and special. Uh, The whole service was in Spanish, and we had it translated into English, as many of our Spanish speakers Uh, have most of the service each and every week for them as a way to to remember uh, Pentecost and how our God has broken down the language barrier of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we saw that through through Christ, uh, many nations, many tongues, there is one Savior. God's people worship in unity because of who Christ is and what he's done. This morning, we continue our series, and we take that theme a little deeper of unity or oneness. When Jesus and the apostles are focusing on unity in their, uh, in their teaching, what are they saying? What kind of unity are they talking about? What uh, kind of unity do they envision? What is the unity that the church is called to experience and to live out in Christ? And as we come to our text, what's uh, something to help us kind of even have in mind that, uh, that Paul likely had in mind as he was writing to the Ephesians is that he, as he argues for unity in Christ, as he talks about this unity that we are to have in Christ, uh, around the same time, Jews and Assyrians were massacring each other in the streets of Caesarea, a city that Paul knew well. A city that Paul had, uh, had been to not long ago in Acts 23. We know that he was in Caesarea. And Paul is calling the church to something new. He's calling the church to a new way, a new life, a new unity. What we see in our text is that the condition that we all find ourselves in is that we are separated, alienated, and hostile apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are separated, alienated, and hostile. Paul uses those three, term, that th- those three terms, that, that image of who we are apart from Christ. Not just with God. Yes, we are separated. We are alienated. We are hostile. We are not just those things to God, but to one another. Particularly to the other. Paul is focusing on a very real separation in his society and culture. A a separation, an alienation, a hostility between Jews and Gentiles. 
Jews were ethnically a people that God had called to himself. And the Gentiles were everybody else, right? Everyone else who was not an ethnic Jew. Whatever ethnicity you were, you were a Gentile. And even among the Gentiles, there was hostility from different types of ethnicities, from different nationalities, as we would understand that today. We are separated, alienated, and hostile apart from Christ. But Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit at work in him, in our text, says that in Christ we are one. Right? He repeats this several times throughout our text. Right? He repeats that, yes, you were separated. Yes, you were alienated. Yes, you were strangers. Yes, you were hostile. But in Christ, through his blood, you have been brought near. Right? In verse 14, for himself, is our pe- for himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in the flesh. He goes on and talks about the one new man in place of the two, right? The two were the Jews and the Gentiles, and now there is one in place of the two, that he might reconcile us both into one body, He continues to talk and to focus on this idea of oneness. We are both access in one spirit. In Christ, we are one. And it's interesting that in the, the previous section, right before we, where we started reading, you know, Paul is speaking about grace through faith and is speaking about our salvation. And he is speaking about it in both individual and corporate terms, right? We often, as we read Scripture, as I've said before, we often read it individually, which it certainly has an individual application. God certainly does interact with us in an individual way. But he also interacts with us corporately as his people, He also, more often than not, is speaking to us in the corporate you, in the plural you, not the singular. And Paul is doing that here in this section where he comes to the end of uh, verses 1 through 10, and he says, and this is a verse that uh, most might know, especially our kids, because in VBS we have had this as as our VBS verse, I think more than once over the years that I've been here, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we as individuals are his workmanship. And God has prepared good works and events for us as individuals to do. But it's not merely in an individual sense that Paul is speaking about we being his workmanship. And it's important for us to understand that as we come into this next portion of the text that Paul is, is, is writing to the Ephesians. Because this next part is talking about God using his creation, his creative ability, a new creation, to bring about one from the two, to build a new temple 
in Christ Jesus, right? God is using his workmanship abilities to fashion and to craft. Right? He's taking something that, was, that looked ugly, that looked desperate in need for a rebuild. He took ruins and is crafting in his workmanship something new. Right, a couple weeks ago, I had a, a, a shed delivered to my house. Well, it was a pallet of pieces delivered to my house that had to be built into a shed, right? I mean, it had all these, all the pieces were there, all the instructions were there, all the pieces were cut to the right length, but I, it wasn't a shed. <laughs> I couldn't put anything in it, right? I took what looked like a mess. I mean, literally, I opened the thing and all the stuff kind of just like, it, it was a mess. I took this mess and through my workmanship have built it into a shed. And it actually looks pretty good, I think. And even more so, God's workmanship is creating and rebuilding and forming something that wasn't there before. You see, it's not merely the individual who has been saved, who has received the immeasurable riches of his grace, but we, as his people, are God's workmanship. God has and is displaying his workmanship in the way he has and continues to unite people in ways that astonish the world. Just like the workmanship that is displayed in the beauty and glory of his creation, his workmanship is displayed in the beauty and glory of the unity of his people. A unity that is diverse in all the ways that are usually expected to divide us. Paul is focusing on ethnicity and race in this passage, but Paul talks about other ways that we are divided as well in other, uh, in other letters, such as language and socioeconomic and gender and nationality and education, all these things that typically would divide us. Paul says, in Christ we are united, that those things, God, has, by his workmanship, has united us and made us something that we weren't before. And as Jesus prayed in John 17, 23, when the world sees this unity that God has by his workmanship formed, then the world will know that the gospel is true. Right? In John 17, 23, Jesus prays, Father, let them be united as you and I are united. <laughs> and if they are, the world will know that you sent me. Right? Jesus himself says the greatest apologetic of the gospel, that the Father sent the Son, Jesus, that he is God in the flesh who came to live, die, and rise again, is not all the historical proofs or an awesome gospel presentation, as important as those can be, but the visible and experienced unity of the church. The greatest apologetic of the gospel. 
is the visible unity of the church. That's how the world will know. Right? That's how the world will know. And it's interesting that Paul talks about this, and not just in Ephesians, he talks about it in Galatians and many of his other uh, writing. But here he's talking about this, and he talks about it in a sense that building off what Jesus himself prayed, he talks about it as it's not just an indifference, right? It's not just an indifference that we have for the other, right? In our sinful state, it's not just an indifference that we have toward the other. In other texts, those different ethnicities, right? Jews and Gentiles, which in our text is uh, between ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles, He doesn't talk about it in the sense of like indifference, but he says it's hostility. It's a willful hatred that is expressed in division. Paul calls it the dividing wall of hostility. He possibly is using this image of of the temple, right? In, In the Old Testament, the only division in the temple was between the priest and the laity. But by Paul's day, architects had added different walls as barriers for non-Jews and for women and for different courts of different people so that they had different places uh, to worship. But Paul says these dividing walls of hostility were abolished in Christ. Right? In Christ, he goes on to say that hostility is killed on the cross, Right? In verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that we might create in himself, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. In Christ, the hostility is killed on the cross and yet as we know, just as all of our sin has been killed on the cross. This hostility toward the other can still dwell within us. Just like any other sin (laughs) continues to rear its ugly head in our lives. Right, many people, especially Christians I hear will say, I'm not hostile to the other. I'm not hostile toward people of different ethnic, racial, language backgrounds. And yet, And please hear me out here. Scripture says that we were. Paul over and over again in his epistles say that we were apart from Christ. And if we were, that sin can still be there in our lives, right? Scripture says that we were. And unless we've all achieved full sanctification in that area of sin in our lives, then on some level, we still struggle with this hostility and must keep on killing it just like any other sin, right? John Owen had this, the mortification of sin, right? It's not just lust or greed or mortification of sin means all of it. 
And if this particular aspect of sin was the way that we, all of us, interacted with the other as hostile, then it is a sin that we must keep on killing and live into the unity that has been bought with the blood of Christ, that we have as one body in Christ. You see, the gospel is the story of reconciliation. Us individually being reconciled to God in Christ and us being reconciled to one another in Christ. The same reconciling grace found in the blood of Jesus that brings us peace with God is the same reconciling grace found in the blood of Jesus that brings us peace with the other. Where hostility once ruled. And it gets even more amazing. Not only were we reconciled as individuals to God and as individuals to one another, but we are made one in Christ, a new creation, made one in the, his body. As a new creation, a new community, a new body, we are reconciled to God, right? It is not just as individuals that we are reconciled to God and to one another, but we are reconciled together in Christ to God himself. We are no longer, Paul says in verse 19, strangers and aliens, Right? We, aliens are, were non-citizens who dwelt in the city, had, had some privileges, but weren't full citizens. And only citizens had the full protections and rights. And not just citizens, but members of the household of God. We are the Father's children. And our unity in Christ by the Spirit creates a dwelling place for God. God meets his people in his holy temple. And the beauty of God is seen through his dwelling place. Right? You think of the Old Testament temple, the temple of Solomon, even the New Testament temple was beautiful to physically show and remind people of God's beauty. And so we as God's people join together, show his beauty. God calls the church to model his unity, to model his kingdom. The church will offer a living example of the power of the gospel to redeem people and to heal the wounds of sin. The church is Christ in the world. The life, fellowship, and ministry of the Christian community should offer a foretaste of life in the kingdom of God to reflect something of what the coming kingdom will be. In John 17, as I mentioned before, Jesus likens the unity he desires for his church as the unity that he and the Father and the Spirit enjoy. The unity of the Trinity. The unity of the Trinity is the unity that all unity is founded on, on which is the model for all unity. May we, as the people of God, know the unity of the Trinity in our lives and may we live it in beauty before a watching world that they might know that the gospel is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you for the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we grow more and more focused on Jesus, Lord God, that our unity becomes more and more visible to the watching world. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would help us as Covenant Community Church. And Lord God, I pray not just for us, but for every church that calls in the name of Jesus to display this unity that the world might know that the gospel is true. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.